Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and I am here to dive into the archives of Boss Talks and bring you some thought-provoking sessions from the past decade. This week we welcome Gareth Marvel to the mic as he talks cultivating trust in your team. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. If you've ever worked with someone you didn't trust, you know why trust is important in the workplace. Teams that don't trust each other don't work well together. And much of the talk around trust in business is misunderstood and lacks clear, actionable frameworks for you to make things better. Drawing on personal experience and a lot of study, Gareth Marlowe of EQ Systems spoke at BOSS in 2019 with a talk aimed to help you to appreciate how trust issues may be limiting your company's growth and the role you may be playing in destroying that trust. Gareth has worked in Cambridge tech companies for 25 years. Whilst at Redgate, he launched and scaled new products, grew revenue and headcount, hired, developed and occasionally fired scores of people so he knows how delicate a balance it can be. Happy listening. So I want to talk to you today about uncomfortable situations. So maybe it's the CTO who nobody in marketing will go and talk to because it always feels like they've done 10 rounds in the ring with them afterwards. Maybe it's that project manager who always seems to leave somebody in tears each week after a one-to-one. Maybe it's the head of sales who says, don't speak to anybody in development, they're all idiots. Or maybe it's the CEO who spends two weeks of each month dreading the upcoming board meeting and the next two weeks trying to recover from it. Oh, before I move on, for those of you who are parents and photographers, you'll recognize the dilemma that I was in at this point here. You know, do I keep the 50 millimeter prime lens on or am I going to change it for 100 mil? And, and, and. <laughs> so we have a number of different animals in our organization zoo. And we heard this morning a lot about the hippo. Highest paid person's opinion. So you know the situation, you're discussing a complicated problem, you've got a group of you together, you're working your way through it, and then the boss walks in and says, this is what we should do. And that's it. That's what you're doing, right? That's the hippo. It's the red balloon. But there are others. Who knows what this is? Cobra, Cobra, brilliant. I thought that uh, that joke was only going to work in Cambridge. Um, Cambridge, England. Um, the cobra sits there quietly, doesn't move very much, waiting for its chance, and then, bam, strikes out, takes out its victim with a harsh word, cutting observation. Or perhaps it's the wolf, hunts in packs, tears its, li it tears its victim limb from limb. Or maybe the swan, swims along serenely, young behind them, until there's a sign of attack or threat, at which point rises out of the water, wings outstretched, hissing. The problem with this stuff is it doesn't sort itself out. If you leave it and you neglect it, it gets worse. And I call this stuff 
people debt. So people debt is like technical debt, but for people. And if you don't sort it out, if you don't find a way of paying it down, if you're lucky, it merely slows you down. It merely gets in the way. If you're unlucky, it can kill you. So like with technical debt, people debt is kind of okay. The organization finds a way of working around it. They will find the people who are capable of going and fronting up and facing up to that person who's difficult, right until the point where you need to make a change and make a change quickly. So maybe somebody key moves on from the team. Maybe you need to do something more fundamental like a big reorganization. And at that point, the people that rises up and really bites you on the ass. Because then you find out that, look, you know, I just can't put these two people over here together with this person. All this stuff gets flushed up to the surface and you can't make the change that you need to make quickly. So like I say, if you're lucky, this merely slows you down. If you're unlucky, it can be fatal. A recent CB Insights survey of the reasons for startup failure, one in four of the reasons that they identified were people and relationship related. So founding team falls apart. Relationship with investors breaks down, burnout. These things are all people and relationship issues, and they can kill you. And in fact, the number one reason in that survey for startup failure was no market need. And I would argue that no market need really means we failed to identify that we didn't have market need early enough and then pivot to actually find market need before the money ran out. And now to what extent is that process inhibited when you've got this people debt in the way? So tell you a little bit about myself. These days, I'm a coach, and I work with the leadership teams of fast-growth technology companies. But when I was a kid, this is what I wanted to do. So I grew up in the northwest of England, and we were surrounded by a lot of chemical and process industry, and I kind of saw this stuff when I was a kid and thought, oh, that's cool. And that is cool. I mean, it's just me. That's cool, right? So it's cool for lots of reasons, right? It's big, and it's metallic, and it's shiny, and it's noisy, and lots of steam comes out, and you make cool stuff in it. But the other thing that's cool about it is it's really just a great big analog computer. And you're trying to use it to solve for things like product oil quality. Um, but it's complicated, because you've got all of these complex feedback loops going in. You're trying to recover the heat from the product that you've made, and you're trying to recycle it back so that you're warming up the feed feedstock. And all of these sort of nonlinear loops going in this complex dynamic system, and just kind of really, really interesting stuff. So I took myself to university and got myself a degree in chemical engineering. But unfortunately, when I was at university getting my degree in chemical engineering, the internet kind of happened. Uh, and I guess that was a reality for several of us here. So there was this new world of uh, other interesting systems to go and build, to go and do interesting stuff that performed in interesting ways. So really, you know, first inception of my career and the first part of my career was about working with systems. Uh, but these days I work with people and I work with organizations. And really, it's still just working with systems. So if we want to understand what is going on with these people and relationship issues, we need to take a kind of systems type of approach. And our brain is a complex system. 
There are a number of discrete parts, all of which are responsible for different functions like logic and language and emotion and regulating the body at a, at, you know, at a low level. And there's an important sort of set of subsystems part of the brain called the limbic system. And this is something that the author and academic Steve Peters calls the chimp. So the chimp is responsible for the survival and the continuation of the species. So basically the four Fs, fight, flight, food, and reproduction. And it's very it does a very important job, because if it wasn't for the chimp, none of us would be here. If it wasn't for the chimp, our ancestors would have been killed, would have been eaten, would have been, wouldn't have been motivated to make more of themselves. But it's not very subtle. It's not very complicated. It's just a chimp, right? So we can actually go now live to the chimp of one member of the audience. Let's see if we can work out who it is. So the chimp, not very subtle. Awesome, but not very subtle. And the chimp is very helpful if we're in a life or death situation. So if a tiger were to walk into the room right now, we wouldn't be pulling out our laptops and building out a spreadsheet to try and figure out the different options for what we should do. We wouldn't be sitting around in a circle at the front telling each other how we were feeling and just kind of checking in with each other. We'd just be running hell for leather for the exit and for safety because that's what we need to do. But for most of us in the working environment, we're not really in life or death situations. But the chimp has still got a job to do. The chimp has still got to protect us and to keep us safe. So instead, the chimp's focus is on questions of status and identity. So things like, uh, so the chimp is tr triggered under these circumstances by things like humiliation, lack of respect, being excluded, lack of support, being misunderstood, confrontation, and injustice. And indeed, for about one in four of us, our chimps are actually quite sensitized to this stuff going on with other people in our presence. So if other people that we can see are experiencing these things, then our chimps are triggered too. An interesting story, actually. So four o'clock yesterday afternoon, Mark grabbed me and said, Gareth, I've had a speaker drop out tomorrow afternoon. Is there any chance that you could step in and, and give your talk from Cambridge? Um, who's seen Chernobyl? Few of you. So I, watched, so I haven't watched it. I was watching it on the plane. Uh, over and um, just the first episode and there's this you know obviously we know the story there's this breach of the nuclear power plant there's all these people in there they don't realize how serious it is um, and then they come out and they start sort of 
mid-conversation just start spontaneously vomiting. It was like chatting away, but, well, that was my reaction. <laughs> that was my reaction when Mark said to me, is there any chance you could do it tomorrow? And not because I'm under any physical threat right now, but what my chimp was doing when Mark said that to me was it was being triggered by the fear of number one. So tomorrow afternoon, you're going to stand up there, you're going to make an idiot of yourself, and you're going to be completely humiliated. And I had a physiological reaction to that thing, very powerful physiological reaction to that thing going on. Fortunately, the only reason I'm not doing it now is because I'm now off my face on adrenaline instead, so that's good. So let's just drill into this chimp reaction a little bit more. Near to my house, I live in Cambridge, England, uh, and near to my house, in the middle of the town, there is a large department store. And when we are in town at the weekend shopping as a family, we'll sometimes go into this department store with the kids because it's a nice break. There's a nice cafe in there, uh, nice view over Cambridge. It's a really nice place uh, just to go on the weekend. And what you need to know about me is that I'm scared of heights. And this cafe is on the top floor of this department store. And so when we're walking towards the cafe, what I have to do is I have to negotiate the escalators of doom. And when I'm on the escalators of doom, all that I'm thinking when I'm on here is, oh my god, there's going to be cracks in the side of the building there. Um, if this starts disintegrating, is the escalator going to make it down to the bottom bit in safety before I fall down there to my certain death? These really sort of racing thoughts, stomachs in my mouth, it's absolutely horrendous. And like I say, I, I, when I'm in there with the kids, it's even worse. So this is, this is our scene, okay? We've got the... Uh, Escalators of doom there. There's the window with a nice view over lovely Cambridge. Uh, the coffee shop's in the corner. And you'll notice here there's beds and mattresses because in this department store, that's where they display their beds and mattresses. So I go in there with my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old. And what do 10-year-olds and 8-year-olds like to do when they see beds and mattresses in stores? They run and they jump on the beds and the mattresses. Except when they're doing that, all I can think of is that they're somehow going to go boing, boing. <laughs> Boing. And we've already ascertained this escalator's gone, right? So there's nothing going to hold them back from falling to their certain death. Um, and I lose it. We get down off there. I've told you, how many times have I told you, get off the beds? And I'm really just kind of lose it. And they're looking at me like, what is wrong with Dad? Dad's gone absolutely nuts. Now, I watched this building being built a few years ago. I know how buildings work. I've got an engineering degree. Uh, we don't get that much seismic activity in East Anglia. The chance of this building falling down when I'm in it or when I'm there with my kids is, is, is zero. So rationally, I know there is absolutely no threat. I know that, but it still doesn't stop my emotional override just kind of kicking in and, and I lose it and I lose the ability to communicate and communicate calmly and communicate rationally. Okay, um, just want to talk for a minute about Stress. So here's a useful way of thinking about stress. Imagine in your mind you've got a balance. And on one side of the balance, you've got the perception of all of the demands that are being placed on you. So this is all of the stuff that you have to do at work, at home, in your life. This is what you have to do. And on the other side of the balance is the perception of the resources that you've got at your disposal to try and meet that demand. Okay, so this is your skills, your experience, your money, if you're in the working environment, maybe the people that you're managing. This is all the stuff that you've got to meet this demand. 
Now, demand is fine. Okay, that side of the, which way I'm looking, that side of the balance, that's just pressure. And pressure's good, pressure helps us focus. Pressure helps us to get stuff done. Pressure helps us to keep moving forward. So pressure is fine until the perception of the demand that's being placed on you exceeds your perception of the resources that you have at your disposal to meet that demand. And that is stress. Stress is really serious, and it's really serious because it doesn't just affect the way that we feel, it affects the way that we perform. So when you're stressed, your emotional regulation goes, your capacity for judging risk goes way down, you tend to catastrophize more. Um, so there's lots of things about your decision making and your interactions that worsen a lot when you're stressed. But also physically, you've got increased blood pressure, you've got an increased risk of having a stroke. There are you know, lots and lots of bad physical consequences of stress. It's a very serious thing. Now, if we know that we're stressed, or we know that there are people who are stressed in our working environments, there are absolutely things that we can do about it that don't just involve giving people more resources or taking away some of their responsibilities. Because the key word here is perception. It's not the balance between the demands that are being placed on you and the resources. It's the perception is the critical thing here. So if we want to do this, which is to right-size the perception of the demand, and we want to right-size the perception of the resources that people have at their disposal, essentially we need to talk to them. Because particularly when somebody is feeling very stressed, they're going to be catastrophizing about the demands that are being placed on them. And they're going to be underestimating the skills and the strengths and the experiences that they have in order to meet that demand. Because that perception of available resources that you have, that's just another word for self-confidence. And the way that we can really help people to understand that is, is just by talking to them about it. It's quite amazing when you see a stressed person there, don't immediately just go away and just try and help them by taking things off them or by giving them more people or more resources, that's not going to be the most effective thing that you can do. Just talk to them. Because this is the game that we're trying to play to try to bring this back into balance. The other reason why this is important is because if you leave stress unaddressed for too long, it turns into burnout. Now, I don't know if any of you here have experienced burnout. I suspect that many of you will, but I have. And it was horrible. So over a two, three months period, my perception of the resources that I had at my disposal to meet all the stuff that I had to do was just way out of kilter. And eventually, it just snapped. I couldn't do anything more. I couldn't work. I couldn't think. The chimps in my head throwing spanners and bananas just going absolutely nuts. And the worst thing about it, the blast radius from this burnout affected the people who were closest to me. That really, really didn't help. Now, I was lucky because I was in a working environment which kind of recognized that this might be what was going on, and some colleagues in work essentially staged an intervention, encouraged me to go and get some cognitive behavioral therapy, sort out some of the messed up thinking that there was in my mind. Uh, I did some mindfulness, I used the Headspace app, that really helped a lot of the internal chatter. 
But ultimately, I went to my GP, my local doctor, and had a chat to her, and she put me on a brief course of SSRIs to help me deal with it. Now, SSRIs are great because it's just a massive dose of shut the hell up to the chimp. So the chimp's sitting there in the corner with his banana, he's sorted. Uh, for me, it wasn't really a long-term solution because basically I stopped caring about everything. Uh, good or bad, you know, family, work, nothing really mattered for that period of time. So that wasn't something that was gonna be a viable long-term solution for me. Uh, and so it was, you know, took the steps to pull things together and, uh, and then to move forward. But this is not a good place to get yourself into. And this is not a good place for your colleagues to get into. And there are things that you can do, there are things that we can do in the working environment to spot it early and to do something about it. Okay. Right, our final piece here in terms of understanding really what's going on before we can do something about, uh, about some of these uh, people and relationship issues. Um, Google did some work uh, 2012, I think it was, with Project Aristotle. Does anybody know, anybody heard of Project Aristotle? Few hands. Okay, so what they were keen to do is to understand what are the characteristics of high-performing teams within Google. So they ran a study across around 200 teams, different functions, different geographies, uh, different levels of seniority, and they were trying to unpack what was going on on the high-performing teams that made them high-performing teams. And the first attempt that they had to try and understand this, they failed. They failed to find what those kind of determining factors are. They were looking at things like level of academic accomplishment, they were looking at the amount of time that people had served in the industry or people had served within the organization. And these things didn't really correlate towards team performance. So they went around the block again and they tried to find a different set of factors and then they did identify something that was coherent and consistent and could be used to predict. So they came up with five factors. Number one, the most important factor, psychological safety. So for high-performing teams at Google, people on those teams felt that they could express themselves without fear of attack, recrimination, humiliation, uh, fear that this might be somehow career-limiting. They could express themselves freely and safely. Number two factor, dependability. You will do what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to do it, to the standards of quality that we all expect. Number three, structure and clarity. This speaks to a load of stuff, actually, that we've heard over the, the last two days. Okay, guys, we, we understand how this is all gonna fit together. We understand how it all breaks down. We understand the processes. We understand how work is going to work. Number four, meaning. Our work is personally meaning for us. The work that we do goes beyond the transactional activities we do on a day-by-day -day basis because we believe and we feel that the consequences of that work are important. And the fifth factor, impact. I see how I fit in to all of this. I see the role that I play in bringing this meaningful outcome about, and I'm recognized for that. And what's interesting for me about all of this is that I would argue that only the middle stri uh, strikes, um, structure and clarity, is really a function of IQ. And the rest of these things have a significant element of emotional intelligence associated with them. Now, that doesn't mean that EQ is more important than IQ. Far from it. The problems that we have 
are extremely difficult and require our smartest and our best to work on them and solve them. But I think what it does mean is that when there's some of this kind of interpersonal relationship, chimp brain stuff in the way, it doesn't matter how smart or how experienced the people on our teams are, you'll still be massively missing out on the potential of those people when they're encumbered by this stuff that's in the way. Just need a drink, one second. Okay, so complex problems generally have complex solutions. But I would argue in this case, there is a silver bullet. There is one very simple, straightforward thing to do that if we concentrate on, and we concentrate on consistently and effectively, makes a massive difference through all of this, and that's trust. So when we build trust, the chimp is calm. When we build trust, we build a sense of predictability in terms of what experiences we're going to get. So we're not sitting there constantly second-guessing, is that person over there going to screw me over? We're not there sitting thinking, when I need it, is that person over here going to be ready? Are they going to have done their stuff? Because the trust is in place, our brains and our chimps aren't really active within the workplace. So we can concentrate on the difficult intellectual problems that we're faced with, and, and maybe some of the more difficult chimp problems externally from, from the organization. So, what can we do? Well, there's whole conferences around trust and around building trust, and I've got under half an hour. So I'm just going to tell you a couple of things that I tried, that I was involved with. There's one cautionary tale that I have in there. But really, what I'm trying to do in this phase is really just to give you something to think about, something to go off and explore. There's something else that I should say, which is Claire Liu, who I don't know if she's here. Uh, she's running a workshop tomorrow afternoon. Um, huge amount of materials on her company's website around this. So if you want to go nuts and do a load of reading, I really encourage you to go to Claire's session and go to her website. But yeah, I just want to share a few personal things. So the first thing is, um, I think this psychological safety stuff is, is part of a wider picture. I think what we're trying to do within our organizations to build a psychologically positive environment. And that involves psychological safety, but it also involves things like hope and belief. The things that we are wishing for, that we're wishing for, that we're trying to bring about. And this is the stuff at the top of that, uh, of that Google stack. So we're talking about the impact that we're trying to have within the organization. We're talking about the change that we're trying to have as a consequence. And so the first thing that I would like really encourage you to do at an organization level is really to think about the purpose of your organization. Really think about what is your vision for the impact that you're trying to have. And start using that language and start telling those stories if you don't do that already. And in my experience working with lots of technology companies, we, we kind of we kind of feel awkward talking about some of this stuff. It feels a little bit grandiose and a little bit highfalutin. And what I'm not saying is sort of everything has to be in the language of we're going to change the world and moonshots and all of this stuff. But what I am talking about is we're talking about more things than just what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. We're talking about the why more. We're talking about what is the change in the world that we're trying to bring about with this world. Just introducing some of that language into our organizations if it's not there already. And the other thing is that when 
we don't tell those stories. The people who work for us are very hungry for those stories anyway. So if we're not telling those stories, they're going to be telling those stories anyway. So if you want them to be the right stories, you've got to get involved and tell them. OK, the next thing to go and tackle at the organizational level, I feel, is values. And when I say values, I don't mean the result of some bullshit exercise that your marketing department has gone through with a PR agency, where they're coming out with a bunch of completely meaningless words that don't really mean anything. And then they stick them on the slide, and all that that does is that it shows that they don't understand how Venn diagrams work. <laughs> I'm loving this strong theme of Venn diagram-based gags at this conference. It's brilliant. Um, now, what I'm talking about is really doing the hard work to thrash out what matters to you. What matters to you, what matters to you as an organization. What are the behaviors that you want to happen? Not just because the law tells us that we have to do them, but because they are the right things to do. But not just figure those things out and communicate them, live them. Because your organization, the people in your organization are gonna follow what you do, not what you say. They're gonna follow what you do. So if you want to have a more collaborative organization, but as a leadership team, you're not collaborative, what's going to happen? What are the people going to do who are in your organization watching the way that you behave? Well, they're not collaborating. You have to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. And there is a sort of a, I don't know, mega value that cuts through all of this. There's a, there's a value that, that sort of rises above and, uh, and has a really powerful effect of building trust, and that's transparency. And by, tr by transparency, I don't just mean, okay, the Google Drive's open to everybody, you can go and have a look and see whatever. I'm talking about very honest and open, context-specific transparency, where there aren't elephants in the room because you're actively talking about the issues. So it's not just we're open and you can go and see everything. It's we are sharing with you what's going on with us. We are sharing with you what we are afraid of. We are sharing with you what we're actually trying to do. We are being open and we are being transparent. This has a massive effect on building trust. Okay, so talked about vision and purpose, talked about values. Next thing I want to talk about is intimacy. So this is a photograph of the ground floor, or looking down towards the ground floor, at Redgate Software in Cambridge, which is where I used to work before I started on this career. Um, and we moved into this building in 2008. And when we moved into the building, the ground floor was this kind of completely empty space. Nothing in it apart from a reception desk and some lifts. Um, and then we got a chance maybe five years ago to to do something more creative with the space that we had. Uh, so we decided that we were going to kit it out and have coffee machines down on the ground floor and some sofas and places to hang out and just make it a more pleasant environment and use the space better. And Simon, who's the CEO uh, at Redgate, said, right, I want to take all of the coffee machines out of all of the other floors. This is a big, tall, three-story building, but like really quite tall building. I want to take all the coffee machines out from all of the floors, and we're going to put them down on the ground floor. 
And I thought this idea was nuts. I thought people were going to be wasting their time. I mean, we've already ascertained the fear of heights thing, right? Look at those stairs. I thought this was a really bad idea. I was dead wrong. It was amazing. So that simple act of forcing everybody down to the same point across the whole business, whichever part of the business they were working in, whichever team that they were in, they had to go downstairs and they had to go and get their cup of coffee or their cup of tea. Absolutely brilliant. And just kind of forging those serendipitous links and connections between people and making people see each other as human beings. And I was serious about playing together as well. So, I guess maybe three years ago, four years ago, um, we did a big Salesforce project at Redgate. And we did a big Salesforce project because for the previous, I don't know, 15 years of the company's life, we had run all of the back end on a set of systems that we'd developed ourselves. So it was this huge, organic, monolithic beast that did uh, contact management and tracked downloads and tracked a whole bunch of uh, invo issued invoices. Um, you know, just kind of virtually everything that was a back-end process had been automated and built into this, this horrific thing. Now, the thing is, with Redgate, really good database tools manufacturer, pretty shit CRM system uh, manufacturer, okay? So um, while at the time this is probably quite a smart decision to make in 2001, 2002, by the time you're into the uh, early 2010s, this is nuts. So we've got to take the core of this thing out and replace it with something best in class. Best in class at that point still is Salesforce. But because of the complexity of these systems, this was not going to be an easy job, okay? Because we had to sort of get a hedge trimmer in and kind of cut around all of this internal architecture and make sure that everything else was capable of keeping going while we put in this CRM system into the middle. So it was this pretty horrendous waterfall, nine-monthish project with about 20 people internally working on it at different points and a handful of uh, really good consultants from, a, from an external agency. Uh, and it all culminated on this day in September, which was deployment day. So on the Friday afternoon, we brought down all the trading systems. And then everybody was going to pile into the office on the Saturday and do this cutover, test the hell out of it, and then hopefully get everything back up and running to trade again on the Monday morning. So, you know, quite scary. Now, if you've ever done one of these deployments, you'll know that there are these periods of intense, frenetic activity, followed by big, long periods where you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs. Because you're just waiting for data to transfer, or you're waiting for a script to run. And I knew that people were going to be giving up their Saturday to come in and do this, and uh, you know, that was a big sacrifice for them. So I thought, well, okay, well, I'll come into the office, but I'll come into the office via the store, and I'll go and buy a Wii U, and a copy of Mario Kart, and a load of controllers, and then at least we can all sit around and have a bit of a game of Mario Kart when we are sitting around waiting for all this stuff to go through. Um, so I did that. And uh, the deployment went well, uh, not related to the Mario Kart, and uh, you know, it was all fine. Now, fast forward about three months. A second Wii U has been bought with another copy of Mario Kart. This is now in the office. Uh, around one in three people in the business is having a game of Mario Kart each week. There is this massive Google Sheet, which is the huge Mario Kart ladder for the organization, quite automated. Obviously, it's been Slack integrated, custom emojis. I mean, they went to town on it. It was awesome. Uh, so yeah, so one in, one in three people is having a game of Mario Kart each week. 
And what does that look like? Well, you look for the people who are either side of you on the ladder, and then you go and say, do you fancy you Mario Kart? And then you take 10 minutes out, and you have a set of three races, and then you record the results in the table, and then you go back and get on with your job. Um, so, waste of company time? I would argue not. I would argue not, because what it was doing was bringing people together from these completely different bits of the organization, somebody there from finance, somebody there from marketing, somebody there from development, and getting them together for this intense frenetic period of about 10 minutes where you're swearing at each other, you're getting very aggressive, all of this stuff is going on, and then you're just going on with your day. So a period of time that's about the same as a sort of cigarette and coffee break, but applied in this kind of way. Uh, and I would argue that's kind of money and time very well spent in terms of bringing and building these intimate connections between people. Because if we want to build trust, we've got to stop thinking of people as being the idiots in development or the fools in marketing and start to relating to each other as people. And this was a really good way of doing that, I feel. Now, this also gives me the opportunity to show you this video, which has nothing, has nothing to do with uh, this talk. It's just my finest moment on the Mario Kart track. So, <laughs> So here's the context. This is Dry Bowser. This is me at the back. Um, Dry Bowser, my daughter says, is Dad Sasha Fierce. Um, and just over my shoulder is my wife, racing as Pink Gold Peach. We're about three corners from the end of the race. Um, she's ahead of me. There's no way I'm going to catch her up. All I've got is one banana left. Boom. <laughs> I, uh, I think we need to see that again, right? Okay. <laughs> Boom. But if you're going to do this, you've got to do this right. So when I was putting this talk together, I went out to my friends and I said, OK, who's got some interesting, weird stories about trust from the workplace? And one friend contacted me and said, well, OK, I was working, he said, I was working in this place, and um, productivity was low, and morale was low, and there wasn't really a sense of purpose. People didn't know where they were going. It all felt a bit flat. So the senior managers thought, well, there's other companies around here, and they seem to be doing well. So what is it that they're doing that we're not? Table tennis. So they went out, and they bought a table tennis table, and they found an underused conference room, and they put the table tennis table in the underused conference room, and then they sent out uh, an email. <laughs> don't, 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 don't do that. Okay, so practically, what can you do? What can you do with your team? Well, here's an exercise that I do with teams if I'm working with them for the first time, and I call this the trust line. So I draw a line on a whiteboard, and one end of the line I label suspicious, and the other end of the line I label naive. And I ask people to say, uh, I, I say to people, can you think about the first time that you have to work with somebody new? So this is not the first time you meet them, but the first time you're actually going to be sitting down and doing some work together that you're depending on each other for. What's your default mindset towards that person when you're working with them for the first time? Is it sort of naive, it's all going to be fine, you know, they haven't got, they're not going to screw me over and they're not going to let me down? Or is it suspicious? You know, actually, eh, don't know, don't know. So I get people to plot themselves on this line, and I also say to them, can you just tell each other what are the factors that are going to shift you in terms of your attitude towards that person? What is going to destroy trust? What's going to build trust? What does that look like? Now, for me, I started off over there, right on the hard right-hand side, super naive, everybody's lovely, nobody's going to hurt each other, just... 
And then, you know, I don't know, 25 years of adulting, second marriage, seen some stuff. Anyway, just kind of moved in a little bit, but I'm still nevertheless, I, I'm kind of pretty much hard over on the right-hand side. But what's interesting when you do this, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> but if you lie to me, if you throw somebody under a bus in front of me, uh, if you do something to, like that to destroy my trust, then I shift very quickly over to that left-hand side. And to be honest, when I'm over there, I might over time move back a little bit, but you're pretty much in the sin bin with me once you're down there, and I sulk. I, I, like, I properly sulk when you're down there. <laughs> it's pretty childish, but nevertheless, that's me. That's how I'm wired. Now, when you repeat this exercise with the other people on your team, you spot something very interesting, and it's quite surprising, and that's the people are kind of distributed all the way across this line. Now, I work with a lot with people, and I'm used to sort of being able to try and, I don't know, determine what makes them tick. But I can never predict, even people I've known for a long time, I can never predict where they're going to put themselves on this line. And I can never really predict what the factors are going to be that affects whether or not, you know, how quickly they move, whether or not they're going to bounce back, and so on and so forth. And I think it's actually because these factors are largely determined by things that happen in our formative years. So it's not particularly the way that our brains were wired at birth or anything like that. It's just kind of early stuff. Early stuff really affects. And by the time we get to adult years, that stuff is it's quite a long way buried. Okay? So it's quite, it doesn't show up on the surface, but it really does affect the way that we think and our sort of default attitudes towards people. And it is absolutely fascinating because when you go down that list of reasons, you know, what do people need to build trust? What destroys trust with people? You find that there's massive variation. So for some people, it's like, okay, it's, you know, it's important that I get recognition for my contribution. For some people, actually, it's just about, like, I want robust debate, right? If we have robust debate, that will build my trust in you. For some people, it's about discretion. For some people, it's about dependability, humility, selflessness, you know, pushback. For some people, it's like, the more you push back against me, the more I trust you, because the more that I believe that you're actually engaging with me on, on, on something real. But the point is this, that when we're having these interactions with other people, it's a natural thing to assume that other people think the way that we do. And the reality when you run this exercise is that that's not true at all. What's going on in other people's heads is very private and is going to be very different from what's going on in your head. And the only way that we can really get towards what we're trying to do, which is, sorry, click, which is to move everybody over to the right-hand side of that scale where they have a high degree of trust with each other, is to be open, push these up, up to the surface, and help us to build our understanding of each other. Okay. Right. This T-shirt that I put back on for today that I was wearing yesterday, getting all sweaty, and then Mark said, can you do the talk tomorrow? I was like, but that's the T-shirt for the talk, shit. So, anyway. <laughs> So yeah, so don't get within about a meter and a half of me yesterday, because it's, I mean, it's quite a sweaty day yesterday. Anyway, does anybody know where this image comes from? What? No, this isn't the album. This. Well, okay. So. This image is derived, this image is actually basically the intersection of all of my musical tastes. So it's basically Acid House plus Joy Division. But um, the point is that it's derived from this image. And this is the album, this is the, uh, the image used on the, uh, the album cover of a, of a 
Joy Division album. It's just turned 40 years old. Now, the story behind this, this image is really interesting and actually ties back to Cambridge, where I'm from. Because this image is CP1919. And CP is Cambridge Pulsar 1919. So this is the trace of the first pulsar ever to have been detected. And it was detected here uh, at the astronomy department of the University of Cambridge. It's over the fields from my house. Um, and it was detected in 1967 by this woman, Jocelyn Bell. And she was a PhD student in the astronomy department at the time. Now, you need to know the context. They weren't looking for pulsars. They were looking for scintillation patterns in what they were observing, the radio signals, so twinkling. They were looking for twinkling in the radio signals that they were coming in because for some different reason, okay? So they had this thing that was recording the radio signals that were coming in from discrete parts of the sky as the, as the Earth rotated, and it would just kind of draw this graph on these great big long rolls of graph paper, and it was her job every morning to get the rolls of graph paper, to roll them out probably about the width of this stage, get down on her hands and knees, and then crawl through it inch by inch, looking for interesting signals. And that's what, you know, that's what she did. That's, that's how you did it. So she's crawling along down here and just going, what, what's that? What's that? There's this sort of particular part of the sky. There's this very, very, very regular signal. What's that? That's, that, that kind of shouldn't be there. Now, the obvious thing that that could be is something terrestrial. So same time of every night, there's a pump that kicks on in the sewage works, or I know, there's something that happens on a regular basis that is human-originated. So she sort of goes to her PhD student, uh, supervisor and says, right, I've, I've found this thing, and, and he just dismissed it. Okay, that's, that's not extraterrestrial, that's terrestrial. And she had big imposter syndrome around this for quite a long time. So she, you know, she was being brushed off and poo-pooed, but she was persistent. And then eventually she found more of these in different parts of the skies with different characteristics. Uh, and eventually she was able to win over her PhD supervisor, the head of department, uh, and then this stuff gets published and ultimately wins the Nobel Prize in 1974 for being one of the most outstanding contributions to observable astronomy in the 20th century. So it wins the Nobel Prize, but not for her. For her PhD supervisor and for, head of, for her head of department, but not for her. She failed to get the recognition for her contribution. Now, as a consequence of that, she failed at that point to have been identified as a role model. And I'm still looking at an audience that is mainly men. And I would argue that it is injustices like that lack of recognition that have gone and contributed to where we are now. So what's the relevance of this to my talk? Well, okay, this is a gross injustice. But where we fail to give recognition where recognition is due, where we fail to really acknowledge the contribution that somebody has made, and even worse, where we give that recognition in the wrong place, it's hugely, hugely destroying of trust. And one of our challenges leading organizations as we scale is that often we don't really know what has gone on in the organization. We don't really know who has done what and why and what their contribution has been. And it's very easy for us to just kind of think, okay, well, it's, I know recognition is important. I better sort of come into the organization and try and spot some stuff and say, oh, that was really good. That was great. 
But when you do that naively, when you don't give credit where it's due, it can be massively destroying of trust. So that's my cautionary tale. So I just really want to wrap up by talking about you. Huge amounts of your ability to understand what makes you tick, what your chimp reactions are going to be, is reliant on your self-awareness. Also, understanding what your blind spots are, where your behaviors have negative impact on other people, and you know, you're maybe well-meaning in what you're trying to do, but it's having a negative impact. Huge amounts of, uh, of this trust and this relationship fabric in the organization, if we're gonna make progress with it, are dependent on us knowing ourselves really well. So what are your strengths? What are your blind spots? And what can you improve? The challenge is, that's very hard for you to, to determine on your own. By definition, you can't see your blind spots. So get help. Ask other people, ask your colleagues, ask the people who work with you, ask the people who work for you, ask the other people that you have a close relationship with, what are my strengths, what are my blind spots, and what could I improve? Because the more you're able to build up that picture of, of really of where you are, the more you might have at least a fighting chance of making some of the changes that you need in order to be able to build trust. Now this stuff that I have said is not easy, it's hard. But I, would, I, I hope that in the, in the course of this talk, I've been able to make the case to say that building trust is worthwhile. So this is my parting thought for you. Please have confidence, be brave, and build trust. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.